What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? And Austin. Yo. And introducing, we've got a guest today, a body horror filmmaker in his own right, one of Austin's dear friends, filmmaker Andy Stewart. How are you, Andy? I'm very well, thank you, and uh, thank you for having me on. This is quite lovely. Yeah, awesome. Uh, as I, welcome, as I, Andy. Welcome. As I told you before the podcast, any excuse to talk about this movie, I'm always excited about it. <laughs> uh, Andy, before we get started, I so I, I looked at your IMDb, and I'm, yeah. as I'm sure you're aware, your IMDb trivia says that you have Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, <laughs> Freddy Krueger, Leatherface, and Pinhead tattooed on your left arm. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I, it wasn't actually me that put that on, uh, the same as it wasn't me that put my height on. <laughs> Uh, okay. But, uh, it's quite funny, nonetheless. Um, yeah, it's yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, horror's pretty much uh, been my life since I was. He's also got fucking Godzilla on him. He's got uh, <laughs> Jaws. He's got. Do you have Wicker Man on you? I do, he's got yeah. fucking. Yeah, I do. He's got everything all over. Hell yeah, his body. all my best friends. Yeah. <laughs> well, at some point, I'm gonna definitely want to ask you about your general opinions on the state of horror. But okay. Until we until then. Today, we're talking about Tetsuo the Iron Man, the 1989 film directed by and starring Shinya Tsukamoto. As always, let's get some first impressions. I know for a fact Ryan has seen this movie, and I know Andy's seen it. So let's start with Austin. Austin, what do you think about this movie? First, real quick, before I say anything, I just want to let people know, this is a smaller film maybe that people aren't as familiar with, but you can find copies of it on YouTube. You can find it on other various streaming sites. It's only an hour and 10 minutes long. Go see it before or or not at, or before or after whatever. It's not like there's gonna be spoilers, but just go fucking see this movie, please. Just go see this. Movie. Um, this is the first time I'd seen the film. I have seen the trailer a handful of times. Andy had sent the trailer to me multiple times. Andy and I worked together on uh, a few different body horror films uh, a couple of years ago in Glasgow and on a couple other projects. And uh, he was like, you got to fucking see this. He's like, if you don't know this, you're missing out. And then uh, Jared and Ryan have talked about this multiple times. So I've seen various like one minute or three minute versions of it. And I was like, Jesus, this is just batshit crazy. But I'd never seen the film. I really had no idea what it was about. And I mean, I don't even know how to really describe it. It's 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 not like a, it's not like a fun watch. It's I mean, it's a fun watch. It is a fun watch. No, it is a fun watch, but it's not like an enjoyable watch. Except in like a perverse way, because it is it is literally one of the weirder films I've ever seen. There's, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I didn't realize I didn't realize how phallic the film was. Oh, you know, boy. oh yes. Like up up to that tank at the end. That's just like a big dick tank. Like <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. I thought this was going to be more for for whatever reason. I thought it was going to be a little bit less plot driven and less conceptual. And I thought it was just going to be. Like weird body shit, like I don't know, a guy <laughs> turning into a scrap metal. I didn't realize how rich it would be in its weird themes that it was exploring. This ain't your grandma's Iron Man, awesome. It's Tetsuo, baby. Well, and then here's my other it's thing, it. and I'm sure we can get into this, but I got really, I got really interested in the name and the end of Akira. Uh, yeah, you know yeah. where is like and. I mean, but they're made at the same time. So I was like, well, did one influence the other? And then I know they made this film over a long period of time, like over 18 18 months or something like that. So I was like, yeah. So I was like, so how, 
How does how does the influence work there? Is Tetsuo just a common name? Was it just total coincidence that you have the transformation? I mean, I, I so I'm really curious as to how. So that I was going to I was going to well. get into this a little bit, but the reason I know about this film is because I I took this class in college. That was actually the hardest class I took in college, and it was called Asian Horror Film. And we learned about this movie, and my professor at the time told me that it actually is based off of the Tetsuo is just directly lifted from. I'm not sure if it was the manga from of the manga, Akira okay. or the movie yeah, was the manga. of Akira. Okay, but yeah, it is a direct reference as far as I know. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, people go see this movie. It's batshit crazy. It, <laughs> it, it'll it, it'll definitely entertain, that's for sure. Okay, awesome. Uh, let's go with Andy. Andy, what do you think about this movie? Tell me about the first time you saw this movie and then what was it like revisiting it for this podcast? Um, well, I mean, uh, I wouldn't even say it was revisited for this podcast. I mean, I, I've seen this film... Fuck knows how many times. Uh, but the mm-hmm. first time I saw it, I think it was about 14 or 15, and I hadn't, I hadn't really seen a massive amount of kind of experimental art house films, which is what this is. Um, and it totally blew me away. Kind of prior to this, all I'd really seen in a similar vein was David Cronenberg's The Fly, um, mm. which was one of the first films that kind of got me interested in body horror. Um, but this film, I think more than maybe any other film ever, um, as the one that kind of made me want to make films. Wow. Um, then it was a good choice for you to come on for this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a, a kind of amazing example of a of a director kind of doing things as cheaply as possible and just bringing loads of ingenuity to the table and just really, like, doing things his way, like, exactly the way he wants to make it. And I, I think it's kind of fascinating. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so when was the last time you watched it? Prior to today, uh, about a month ago. <laughs> okay. So if you, if you had to guess, how many times have you seen it? Like upwards of 30? Um, I would say so. Yeah, I, it's also wow. a film that I kind of enjoy putting on at parties. Because like, oh, I bet. Like, no matter what, what moment you glance at the screen, there's something fucking nuts going on. Um, so yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter when you look at the screen, somebody's going to go, what the fuck are we? What, what the fuck are we watching? Yeah, that's a great point. It's a great screensaver. Okay, Ryan, can you remember the first time that you saw this movie, and what was it like revisiting it? Well, the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, it was it was at the Oakwood apartment, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, when we first moved to LA, like nine, ten years ago, um, and yeah, I want to say we were we, just like you said, uh, Andy. We were like constantly looking at each other, going like, "What the." are we watching right now <laughs> you know like and and yeah like revisiting it uh, also kind of piggybacking on what Austin was saying I was not necessarily looking forward to revisiting this movie not that I don't love it I fucking love it it's just yeah like you were saying it is an assault on your senses you know huh. it's like the whole time it's just like yeah it's like going into a room where someone's just like banging on pots and pans for an hour, you know, crunching metal, <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of an experience, but it, it, yeah, it's amazing. It's pure cinema. Kind of like what you were saying earlier about like, it, it's a very inspiring movie too. You know, it's like DIY punk rock filmmaking and you can see how he does all these effects. Yeah. And it kind of, even though you're still into the story, but you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. simple filmmaking technique that he's using pretty effectively there. Uh, yeah, the whole thing is insane. I can't believe it exists, and the guy who made it <laughs> needs to uh, go to the hospital. <laughs> he's, he's clearly crazy. Um, yeah, it's an amazing movie. It is an amazing movie. I, I have a very uh, 
unique relationship with this movie. So as I mentioned, I watched it for a class I took called Asian Horror Film. In college, sometimes when you have screenings, when you're in film school, the screenings are always at like 7 p.m. So I'll have just eaten dinner. And I always fall asleep during these fucking screenings. And I fell asleep during like maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes of this movie. And I woke up and I was like, I have no idea what's going on. To be honest, I I didn't, I walked away from that movie like a little bit nervous. I'm like, was I supposed to get anything from that? Because I really, if someone asked me what this movie is about, I would only be able to venture a guess. And <laughs> did anyone else have I that? I ex- still don't know what the fuck it's about. Okay. I still, I, after seeing it again, I'm like, I have no <laughs> clue. I go, well, what the fuck are we going to talk about on this podcast? Uh, okay, mean, so there is there there is a plot. There yeah, is a plot. It's like I, a, I have it's, the plot pretty pretty much ironed out by now. But it is definitely a film that if you glance away for the slightest moment and glance back, um, whatever you thought you were has moved on to a, a place that is way more crazy than you ever thought it would go. It, re- hmm. it requires constant diligence because if you stop <laughs> thinking critically for a second, because what happened with me is I just kind of let it slip. I'm like, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. So maybe I'm just watching some sort of really formless art film that's really just more like a Kuyani Skatsi type montage of industrial images. And then you just kind of give up trying to make a narrative out of it. And then, but the second time I watched it, I got it or as got as much of it as one could get. And then I actually ended up writing my final paper for that class on this movie. So I've seen this movie maybe like seven times. And then watching it last night, I'm telling you, man, this movie is has still some of the most striking and provocative images I've seen in anything in a long time. And that's including all of the CGI spectacles that we've had over the last 15 years. I don't think anything comes to close to as grimy and grungy and evocative and just kind of terrifying and disgusting at the same time that the images yeah. in this movie are and you know it's obvious that this movie was made on a low budget but it certainly does not look like it was made easily Dude, you, you know, know what's the, weird? Amount, the amount of labor that went into this must be insane yeah I, I had this overwhelming feeling of how like current the film felt as yeah, weird yeah. as weird as that is, I'm like, this film was made in 88, but I felt like that if you told me that this was at, um, like, Slam Dance or something or one of, like, the genre film fests, I would I, I'd be like, yeah, like, this year in 2019. I'd be like, yeah. Like, it for some reason, practical effects don't age, you know? And, yeah, they don't. Um, I felt – it felt very – like, it didn't feel outdated to me, yeah. even though it's 30 – years old what i would what i would say austin to that is that um at, at the time this film came out like japanese cinema was in a bit of a mess in the 80s like there was no real desire out with japan to really see any independent japanese films and then when tetsuo got made it went and played at fanta festival in rome um mm. where it weirdly played without subtitles and it still won the best film um, <laughs> and uh i mean there's not much dialogue in it anyway it pretty much plays yeah. like a silent film but um, yeah, it's a film that kind of reinvigorated kind of Japanese cinema out with Japan and kind of brought all these kind of young voices screaming out. Guys like Takashi Miki kind of followed it like almost immediately, and I think mm. it's a, a really important film, not just in Japanese cinema but in general. Mm. Ryan and I are huge Miki fans, so one day we're going to cover that on the podcast as well. 
Uh, but yeah, Shinya Tsukamoto, who is the filmmaker, he also plays the main guy, the salary man. But yep. he's also an actor. He primarily acts these days. For those of you who are fellow video game nerds listening now, uh, he's also the voice of Vamp in Metal Gear Solid. So I always found that to be, well, at least in the Japanese version, not in the in the American version. Hmm. But uh, before we go into the recap, real quick, I want to ask either Ryan or Andy, have you guys seen the sequels and what do you hmm. think about them? I have seen both sequels. Oh, yeah, I've seen them. Oh, yeah, me and Ryan watched Bullet Man together. Mm-hmm. And I'll just go ahead and throw my two cents in there. I think that they get progressively worse, and Bullet Man in particular is kind of unwatchable, mostly because <laughs> it's shot mostly because it's shot on digital, and it looks horrible. Yeah, it's also... Uh, uh, yeah, I would agree that they're, they're kind of on a, a kind of sliding scale of quality after the yeah. first one. Um, but I've got a fair amount of time for... I've got a fair amount of time for Body Hammer. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. How does I, it go? Did, does it go? Does it go? Iron Man, Body Hammer, Bullet Man. Is that yeah. the three? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they keep changing just, the film it, stock. It's a hard gimmick to uh, uh, to replicate. You know, like like you can't like like it, it's kind of like once you see it once, once you see the first one, it's hard to really like be impressed by the second two. You kind of like, all right, I've seen Iron Man. This is the kind. Of, it's very similar. Is basically what I'm saying. You know. Yeah. This movie was shot on, I believe, black and white reversal film that gives it that very creepy quality. And then I believe uh, Body Hammer was shot on color reversal, which makes it less creepy. And then the new one is shot on some sort of digital camera, which makes everything just look really fake. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it was a real big disappointment. Yeah. I think uh, as well, uh, Body Hammer came out so kind of quickly after Tetsuo. There was only one film in between. Um, or sorry, after the Iron Man. Um, but there was like 15 years between Body Hammer and Bullet Man. Yeah. So, Bullet I mean, Man it... came out in 2009. Yeah. 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 All right, guys, let's go into a recap. In what can only be described as an industrial wasteland, a metal fetishist inserts a metal rod into his leg in an attempt to become a better runner. But when the wound doesn't heal properly, he runs to the hospital only to be run over by a salaryman. Back in his apartment, the salaryman finds a metallic growth on his cheek, and sex with his girlfriend becomes more intense than ever. But with that intensity, he starts experiencing some strange happenings. The metal fetishist's spirit possesses a woman who chases the salaryman on his commute, and after that, his body starts to grow metal appendages, including a drill dick that he kills his girlfriend with. Eventually, it's revealed that the salaryman and his girlfriend threw the fetishist's body in a ravine to hide the evidence, but the fetishist's spirit still lives on. Now entirely enveloped in metal, the salaryman bemoans his girlfriend's death as the fetishist taunts him. The fetishist possesses his girlfriend's dead body, manifests a new one, and shows the salaryman an image of a new world made completely of metal. The fetishist, now with the ability to control metal, chases the salaryman to an abandoned warehouse where they do battle and ultimately merge into a new metal being that vows to spread the message of metal and rust to the world. Game over. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's that's about the size of it yeah so hold on uh austin how much of that 
did you get or I mean I'm not, I mean I'm not even saying I'm 100% right, but did that kind of sync with what you got after one viewing? I got about 80% of it and then I okay. went online and read a bunch of things and I was like, "Oh yeah, okay. I get okay. it. it." It's going to sound really shitty too, but like I had a difficult time sometimes telling the difference between some of the actors. Um, right, okay. And so especially with all the shit on their faces and at the end I was like, <laughs> "Wait, isn't that his isn't that his girl?" And I was confused. I was like, that's his girl, isn't it? I was like, that looks like his girl. And then I was like, but no, like maybe it's just because of the prosthetics on their face. And I was like, I, I was like, oh, maybe I'm just racist. And I think that all Asian people look alike or something like that. And I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. And so then I just read a couple of reviews and I was like, oh, I get it. Okay, so the spirit was possessing bodies and it was the same person. And so I had to read a bit. Uh, I read probably like three or four synopses, analyses and things like that. And then I was able to piece what you just said together by the end of the night when I went to sleep I was right where you are but I had to read to fill in the extra 20% yeah all right guys before we move uh, hey, on Jared, hey Jared yeah uh, uh, real quick before we go on uh, acid blood 13 in the chat uh, wanted to correct us uh, you said uh, lol at all the people quoting Akira uh, Akira Tetsuo means metal man in Japanese and it's an and it isn't an uncommon name so that's interesting metal man Okay, so it's Metal Man the Iron Man. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks, Good to know. Thanks, Acid Blood 13. Thank you, Acid Blood 13. So, um, whether or not the title is a reference to Tetsuo from Akira, which I really have no way of proving at the moment, I still think that there's a fair amount of thematic overlap between the two pieces, and at least if we are to believe that it is referenced from a reference to Akira, it's definitely a good starting point to um, to begin the discussion. So we discussed in our Akira podcast how people have interpreted the film as an expression of the massive economic gains and rapid industrialization of Japan in the 1980s that were arguably compromising their national identity. So to some, the image of Tetsuo turning into a giant abomination of metal and flesh indicates a sense of growth that is out of their control. And I think we could say we see a similar vein in Tetsuo the Iron Man, although albeit perhaps a more sexualized one. Uh, the movie is a bit of a mix of a, of Akira and our Videodrome podcast, because in our Videodrome yeah. podcast, we talked a lot about uh, technology fetishism. And even Tsukamoto has even called himself a disciple of Cronenberg. So I found mm -hmm. that very interesting. Yeah. So with that, let's mm -hmm. go into the, our first talking point, which is technology slash metal fetishism, <laughs> juxtaposing images of industrial stuff and sexuality. Where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> with the big drill dick that's where the big begin, drill maybe. dick can't get away from the drill dick uh, i mean there's yeah. the drill dick and then I there's the dude say, at the end that's like i would say earlier than that well, yeah. to be honest i'd say is when it? uh when his girlfriend rapes him with a tentacle oh yeah i forgot about oh, that the big yeah. snake dick. <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, there's um is it ahead. rape is well is it rape or is it just kind of well, it's a Intense it's a rape fantasy because it's a dream, right? Yeah, he certainly yeah. looks surprised. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to get to this later, but I think you know you said he looks surprised. I think one of the interesting things this movie brings up is: is it pleasure or is it pain? Because sometimes the salary man screaming seems to indicate indicate pleasure, as like when he's feeding his girlfriend. Yeah, or right, or um, but then there's also the time where the girlfriend is sodomizing him in the dream. Um, and then I don't even know what to think of when his body is transforming. Is it pain? Is it pleasure? Is the movie asking us to question the line between the two? 
Well, and she seems both horrified but also fascinated. And I don't know if that's just a performance thing or what, but she she didn't really seem like she was absolutely terrified when he's transforming when they're in their apartment, you know? Like there was also a bit of fascination. And and of course she gets terrified at the, afterwards when she says, you know, nothing bothers me and he lets her in the room or whatever. But um but still there like there was a moment of curiosity as well in this that I thought was kind of strange uh to kind of look at those those tensions. Yeah, there's even a part that I found interesting that I remember all the way back into my college class that people brought up was that even before he starts transforming like crazy town, they're having sex and she's like leaning on the fan. Like she's using the fan to stay up as they're having sex. And I feel like throughout the movie, there's even like later when there's an image of a doctor saying like, oh my God, you're super fucked up. There's like a fan that's blowing him everywhere. We see either a reliance on technology or, you know, technology being incorporated into a sexual activity. And then, yeah, I think to Austin's point, he starts transforming, and I think that even turns her on even more. But mm. then when things start getting over-the-top gross, then that's where he kind of freaks out and goes into the bathroom. Because I think maybe during the act of coitus, they she, like, scrapes herself on one of his appendages or something. And that, that's what makes him run into the bathroom, and that's when she's like, oh, I can take it, I can take it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is interesting to to kind of think through, you know, like what is that, that line between the horrific, the painful and the pleasurable? I mean, you know, there's this thing online right now that's a big issue that's kind of, you know, there's obviously the Me Too movement and there was a philosopher, political theorist named Kate Mann who wrote uh, like against choking and, and these other sort of more like, let's say, intense physical activities and in, in, uh, the amorous relationship. And then there was a lot of pushback against that saying, no, no, don't kink shame. Like, if it's my kink to want to have a little bit of pain, like, don't shame me for my kinks, right? So there's that thing, right, that's big online right now, don't kink shame sort of thing. So in a sense, there's some interesting stuff that's being explored here that's like, there's some kinky shit going on, you know? And how is it that we're supposed to look at something like that and think through it and in what way does – I don't know, man. Like, like I know one of one of Andy's favorite authors is uh, – what's – who wrote – uh, cock and cock and bull or whatever it is oh will self, will self? Yeah. was it will self yeah so will self and then obviously you love cronenberg so there's this there's this there is a a rich tradition of exploring these sort of like what we might call perverse or kinky acts of sexual activity that are kind of outside the mainstream and it's just interesting to kind of like how does that make us feel like i don't know yeah so if i had to sum up sorry you were gonna say something ryan yeah, I was just going to say that my interpretation of, like, you know, whether it's pain or pleasure, how we're supposed to feel about it, like, to me, the arc was kind of, obviously, you know, he's going through this horrific uh, uh, transformation, so it's pain at the beginning. He doesn't want that to happen. No one wants their body to turn into a giant drill. Um, but uh, but then but then it's almost like he got drunk on the power of it or something, and that kind of makes him have this sexual... Uh, 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 reaction. I don't know. That was, that's kind of how I took it. I, well, it I think I think I think you're right, but I think that at least for me, the real transition point is where after they have sex, he makes her eggs in that really disgusting pan, <laughs> and then he starts feeding her. You know what I'm talking about? So you see him yeah. sexually feeding her from the pan. Every time she eats the food off the fork, there's either like a metallic screeching sound that's like nails on a chalkboard, or a metallic booming sound. And to me, this kind of definitely shows his mutating sexuality. 
because and then so he and then so it's like a bit of eggs, a bit of eggs, uh, metallic boom, metallic boom, metallic boom. And then he gives her a piece of sausage, which, of course, looks <laughs> like a dick. And then she starts licking it and it makes this kind of metal grinding sound. And then when she bites down on it, the screen goes white and the metal sound starts reverberating. And to me, that's an orgasm. Yeah, well, that's the immediate precursor to the the kind of appearance of the dick drill. Um, so I think that is supposed to kind of play into his arousal, um, which brings forth uh, the the spinning dick of death. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think you're you're kind of pretty much bang on with that. Do you think there's a sense in which uh, that it's almost like she was playing this game, but she didn't realize what she was getting, and then the dick drill comes, and it's almost like a a manifestation of her kink, uh, of her fantasies, but then it's too much? I certainly think that she um, she pushes way further than she should, but she has a kind of playfulness about her that she she knows exactly what, what it is that she's doing. Well, mm. I think this, this begs a good question. What is it exactly that makes them... Because I, I think we're meant to believe at the towards like the second third of the movie we see that that image of them having sex in the woods is them having sex after dumping the metal fetish's body, and then I guess they get so turned on by the act. What exactly yeah. is turning them on? Is it that they're living dangerously and just covered up a murder, yeah, or is it something I, I think, else? I think that's exactly exactly what it is. I mean, I think everything you're seeing there is from the metal fetish's kind of point of view. So um, mm-hmm. it certainly seems to me like they're having sex almost on his on what they believe to be his dead body um which is uh certainly the way i've always taken it there's something interesting too the uh in in that sex scene when he climaxes they there's like a quick cut to an explosion and i was thinking is that the atomic <laughs> bomb like like oh, sure it? it's just like a nice cut to an explosion which you're like okay orgasm but also was it the atomic bomb or was it just an a, a generic explosion just to kind of symbolize orgasm i don't i don't remember i'd have to go back there are so many quick things that happen in this movie like quick cuts like one that comes to mind is there's like two or three times in the movie there's like someone on the tv it's like a lady who goes ha 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 and it's like this really high pitched thing i have no idea why that's there but i always found it to be pretty pretty interesting well i think so like one of the i i think that from my perspective, obviously the philosopher here, I'm looking at this at like the larger conceptual level. And so the the smaller plot points, I think, kind of all support the designing principle. And for me, I think the, the most striking or interesting element of the designing principle is the relationship between like libidinal desire and like sexual power or prowess and technological or industrial production, right? So it, it's almost as though somehow – what the film is exploring is this the, the the tensions and anxieties that come from post World War II Japan's uh, industrial expansion. I mean, you see this in the films of Miyazaki as well, right? Now Miyazaki's right. a pacifist and an environmentalist, and he wants to warn of the Japanese uh, fetishization of industrial. Uh, technological expansion in favor of trying to make sure that we don't forget nature and things like that. And I wonder, I think that there's something similar going on in this film is, is that clearly it's kind of saying like that, that metal takes over, that industry takes over. And there's a sense in which you synthesize, you lose like that, which was organically human in the fusion of these two sort of 
uh, different material objects or entities or substances, let's say. And the question is then, okay, so how does that that rapid expansion of technological growth and the anxieties that come with that, how does that relate to sex and sexuality? And it seems that like, because it's phallic, right? There's, it's not like it's yonic at all. It's always phallic. It's always a dick. It's a drill dick. It's the dude at the end in the warehouse who's like pulling on, I don't know what he's doing. It looks like he's <laughs> masturbating with like a rebar or some shit like that. And then of course, there's yeah, sure. the, 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 dick, the dick tank, right? which is like the synthesis. And then they're going to go through and they're going to transform the world. And how are they going to transform the world? It's not through like production and investment. It's we're going to fuck the world, like in the literal sense. Like we've got a dick and that's what happens when we fuse together, rust and metal together, our love. Again, another amorous term. I don't know what the Japanese term is, but I'm curious if there's like, if it's love in the romantic sense or if there's like some nuance to it that it could be eros or something like that. But the idea is, is that it's our love. We're going to fuck the world and that's how we're going to transform the world. So again, it's it's like there's something about like masculine uh, expansion that takes over through industrialization and that's what this film is exploring. And so then I wonder if I think about that, how does that then affect the sex scenes at the personal level, at the level of plot? It's good that you brought up Miyazaki because I think it's like the opposite of Miyazaki. This is like heavy metal. Like not only is technology or metal changing us, but let's just lean into that. I mean, the way I would describe it is it's like about transhumanism. Like so if technology or metal invades and enhances our bodies, whether it be contact lenses or if you want to get more literal like a actual prosthetic limb or anything like that and we're sexually attracted to bodies, then are we not increasingly attracted to technology or metal? And this is just going all in on that. And then I, would say- I think you're right. I, I think that the anti-Miyazaki is spot on. Yeah, if like Miyazaki is like a celebration of life, then this movie is just like a celebration of the destruction of life, basically, or, or just <laughs> of just darkness. <laughs> I don't know. But it just revels in that. It's like a hedonistic nightmare. Fucking awesome. Um, originally, the film was considerably longer. I think it was about 10 minutes longer. Um, and it kind of played more into, um, or less into the kind of rivalry and hatred that the fetishist has towards the Iron Man for killing him. But it plays into like this growing attraction and love that the fetishist has for the Iron Man, which kind of comes out a little bit in the, the fusion of them at the end and the joining with the umbilical cord and... I guess the kind of last line in the film, which is uh, uh, love with, through our love will destroy the world, I think, um, something like that. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting that that was originally part of that and it was removed and as far as I know has never been seen. Um, but I would certainly like to see how that kind of changed the tone. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I'd never heard that. That's super interesting. Yeah, because that synthesis at the end is interesting, right? Because you've got... You've got uh... The fetishist who talks about how he was transformed and it was because of rust. And I was thinking that that was going to make a different point. But it was interesting that like the rust infected the body and then it served like some sort of virus that spread. But then uh, the salary man, uh, the Iron Man, there wasn't rust. It was like the clean metal when he was shaving his face that affected him. Mm-hmm. And there's something interesting about what is rust? Well, we think of rust as being like a corruption of metal. So you've got like a dark. It's the death of metal. Yeah, it is, right? Yeah. So it's decay. That's metal cancer. Exactly. Yeah. So he, he's like the cancerous decay. Um, and then maybe he has to 
maybe part of the reason that he's fascinated with the Iron Man is that that decay can't survive on its own. It has to have like a host to feed off of, right? I and see. So, I see it more yeah, as a balance. But, yeah. He, okay. He needs. Uh, it's like Batman and Joker. Um, without right. one, there can't really be the other. And they kind of yeah. balance each other out to become this this perfect portrayal of metal and and good form and in bad form. In the shape of a dick. Yeah, in the yeah. shape of a dick, which hilariously <laughs> uh, also has an Uzi. Yeah, I th- right. For I think right. you got as if yeah. the, as if a dick tank's not scary enough. Yeah, <laughs> I think you guys are right. I that makes more sense of what I was gonna say, which is that it's more kind of just a rock and roll, heavy metal celebration of both metal and rust. Um, and then something else, uh, another element reminded me. Or another element came to mind when you guys were mentioning that, and that's a uh, TV static, or yeah. as it's called, noise is constantly used in transitions, and mm. we like to think of static as a- an aberration of television. Like, oh, something's wrong because I see static. Static is pure television because it's what you get when they're, mm. the antenna is not receiving any signals. And I feel like there's a similar appreciation or a similar fetishization of the thing that is the pure medium, the pure technological format. And you can also hear static over the title cards. And there's just so many awesome formal things about this movie that I want to transition to this next point we're talking about. Um, just things like when he's peeling off the skin in his cheek, we hear Velcro. <laughs> like everything, like, you know, it's not enough that we just see his body being taken over by metal and other industrial elements, but it's just even the sound of his skin mutating is taking on the sound of an of a industrial adhesive or something like that. So there's so many cool things going on about this movie. Um, hmm. I think it really as- speaks to, though, j- Andy mentioned this in, in the intro more about the ingenuity of filmmaking and how like you know we we often bemoan the the ubiquity of computer generated filmmaking today right and how it's sort of like yeah it's amazing that you can film on a sound stage but you can be in bangkok like that's amazing right like technologically but there's there's something about being an artist that is like i have a very limited amount of money cuz i got a day job and here is my budget, and I don't have a studio, and I don't have financiers behind me. And so I've got to use creativity in order to to get by and make something. And then you got to use little tricks. you got to use camera tricks. You've got to use film grain. You've got to use black and white to kind of cover over. Like you said, when when you, the, the new film in digital, you just kind of – everything looks cheesy and fake. Well, yeah, but the amazing thing is if you use the right film or if you use the right camera techniques or if you use the right – uh, editing techniques, then you can kind of cover over a lot of those those weaker elements, and it creates something really fucking interesting. And that's what you get in this film. And I think that this is what art is. Like this is what, like for me, this is an artistic expression more than anything. Like magnified to the hilt. And I think that's what's so amazing about this accomplishment. It's the the movie that I hear being likened to a lot, which came out. Uh, in a similar time period, is Eraserhead, of course. And it's yeah. funny how that movie similarly took years to make because they didn't have much of a budget and everything had to be made in a kind of DIY fashion. Um, but even this movie, 
just the sheer magnitude of all the wires and the stop motion and all of yeah. the grungy stuff. I mean, I God, I this I would love to see a behind the scenes documentary on how this was done. Yeah, mm. there, there, there is stuff there is stuff out there, um, but I, I I think that the, the whole film to me plays out like a like a budding filmmaker's manual. Um, I mean, I think the sound design on it's absolutely incredible. Um, from the first minute when he runs that bolt across his teeth, um, Ooh, yeah. oh yeah, which immediately sets my sets my teeth on edge because I do not like shit with teeth. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. To I, I love the music. Uh, I know that um, when he kind of took the the direction to the to the composer is direction was something like can we make all the music out of metal and the guy was like well that's not possible um so uh, <laughs> he went for this industrial soundtrack which i think absolutely delivers on that same kind of feeling um i love that i think gore is always sold much stronger in black and white um it kind of hides any imperfections or discolorations in the blood and i just think it, you you have to use your, your your mind a lot more to fill in the blanks um, to, to colour it in your head um, I just think there's so much going on here the set design, uh, particularly in uh, the metal fetishists kind of nest is incredible absolutely amazing mm. yeah that's interesting I, I think the, the bit about the black and white one of the things that it does it, it did for me, and I don't know if this is just kind of like my own inclination or if this is a, a larger tendency, but because it makes our minds have to fill in the gaps, like you just said it forces you to be more actively engaged like you're a more active participant in the uh the reception of this film whereas if it's like a perfectly pristine image that's being fed to us we can be much more passive in our reception it's more unilateral and i wonder it like to me i think that's really it's much more of an immersive experience when you can create that participatory uh experience you know definitely I've never really had that experience. I've never really thought about black and white like that. I've never thought of it as something that requires me to fill in more blanks. I just think, I think to Andy's point, just the stark blacks and whites, this movie just makes me feel dirty in a really kind of awesome way Uh that I, that I think is super unique. And I can't think of a grungier film that makes Mm. me just want to go Marie Kondo in my (laughs) apartment than, than, than this one. (laughs) And I would say as well, just going back to what you said about uh, the kind of stark, the kind of stark black and white stuff. I think that the the moment where um, the woman fall kind of falls on the drill uh, when she's got the white sheet behind her, and then mm. it's just this prolonged shot of the sheet turning black with blood. Um, yes, that's my favorite shot in yeah. isolation in the film. I think it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it looked like I was wondering, was it like I, I thought it was like I, it looked like someone was like spray painting the wall or something behind. Right. Like it was oh, really probably. interesting the way they did it. And I was like, I wonder how they're doing that. Like there's somebody sitting behind the actor just like spraying blood on this white screen. <laughs> Austin, you've been you've been on my stuff. You know, like there's always someone ducked down between your legs <laughs> with, a, with like a yeah. plastic tube or uh, just off to the side spraying pus on a mirror. Um, yeah. Actually, the scene where he's uh, the scene where he's looking in the mirror and he's peeling his face off, um, I stole that for my film Split. Um, although it's just a bit more sterile in my film. <laughs> I knew it looked familiar. <laughs> oh, nice. So I want to talk a little bit more. 
Oh, go ahead, Ryan. I was just going to say that 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 uh, in terms of the, the the grittiness and the black and white stuff, like blood, for some reason, when it's in black and white and it and it basically comes out as black, it just has this yeah this visceral effect where it's way grosser than the normal red. Yeah. I feel like it. You know, it's weird to think of your blood as black. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I think given the pretty obvious budgetary limitations, I still think. I mean, well, thirty years later. Um, and I still think that the effects in Titsu will look pretty impressive. Oh, particularly, absolutely. Particularly that opening shot with a knife in the leg when he cuts his leg open and puts the uh, the, uh-huh. the bolt in. Hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the formal elements that I noticed. So I'm getting a little bit meta here, which I tend to do. Where's the... <laughs> here Let's we go. Do it, baby. Um, all right, so there are... the. Form of the film is always drawing attention to formats or the technology of the images. So I already mentioned the TV static transitions. There's also VHS rewinds. The image of him having sex with his girlfriend after dumping the body in the ravine has tracking lines over it. So, But this isn't even on TV. They obviously probably filmed it on VHS or something like that or on beta and then filmed that image with their 16-millimeter black and white reversal film that, that's and, exactly yeah so and then there's all the stop motion going on so i'm getting a little bit wanky here but it's not that our characters are actually moving but the machine the film projector itself is creating the movement and if we're talking about how this movie is all about the fetishistic adoration of machines and how they're going to bring us to our next level of of uh evolution and how we should just give ourselves completely and start finding beauty in the rust and the gross (laughs) the gross industrial slime then i think that it's really interesting that the movie is very mechanically put together um so i was really into that when watching it this time all right, guys, before we move on, this podcast is brought to you by My Roadcast, the all-new podcasting competition from Rode Microphones, which is the microphone you're hearing me on right now. Rode is inviting podcasters of all experience levels to showcase their talents. All you got to do is submit a two-minute podcast on any topic and in any format to go into the running to win a share in $150,000 worth of prizes, including the all-new Rodecaster Pro Production Studio, Rode Pod Mics, headphones from Urban Ears, Adobe subscriptions, and heaps more. You got a voice, so be heard. Find out how to enter, who will be judging, and a full list of prizes at MyRoadcast.com. And now back to the show. So in that uh, Asian horror film class, our teacher, in order to get us to understand what Tetsuo the Iron Man is about, required us to take a piece of technology and it had to be metal. And we had to carry it around with us all the time. <laughs> so there would be like girls in my class who would just fill their purses with nuts and bolts. And then, you know, and then our teacher was like, you have to walk around for a week with that. And then uh, after the end of the week, the teacher would come back and say, so did you guys kind of grow to like it? And uh, I don't know if, if uh, some of the women were just trying to get A's in the class, but they were like, yeah, yeah, I just, I, I grew to love the clang, the sound of the metal <laughs> clanging in my, in my purse. That's so funny. Also a, a pretty handy mugger deterrent. The what deterrent? A pretty handy mugger deterrent. Oh, oh yeah, that's yeah, right. sure. Then your purse is going to be real heavy. My grandma, my grandma used to walk around with rolled up. Uh, pennies and quarters in her purse uh, in downtown LA so that if people tried to mug her she would beat the shit out of them yeah, well, did, uh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, it did. It did happen quite often. What I would do is I, I at the time Ooh. I was using a GPS to get around everywhere, and uh, although there wasn't a lot of metal on the GPS, I that's what I was carrying around because I was telling my teacher like, you don't understand when I'm driving. This GPS is my eyes. You know, I go where it tells me to go. I, I have no sense of critical thinking as to where I'm going. I'm just following the machine as if it were my eyes. And so I think she let me pass for that. Uh, <laughs> I just think about the ubiquity of this. How many dudes at the gym are and and are wearing like those weighted vests so that you can do pull-ups and add weight to yourself? And then they go run on a treadmill or you wear a backpack and in your backpack, I mean, it's not all metal, but you've got metal zippers and you've got metal things. And then, of course, you've got your little, uh, what, what are they called, camel pack or whatever, the little water satchel that's in there yeah, yeah, so you yeah. can suck on you know, you got that shit. I mean, I, I I walk to I walk around every day and I got a backpack on my back. People wear briefcases with them. You know, I mean, we are we are constantly carrying around explicit technologies beyond just the more implicit ones as well that I was talking about earlier. You know. Yeah, and then when you get to the whole Google Watch stuff, which I refuse to put on, where like people are like, "Oh, the Google Watch <laughs> is telling me to stand up because I've been sitting for forty five minutes." I'm just like, dude. I mean, that that's where I get, like, anti-Tetsuo. I'm like, I don't know. Like, that's that's where I don't want the machine to be telling me when I need to fucking stand up every t- every 45 minutes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, How's your circulation, Jared? Uh, it's fine enough for me to be doing this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> I, don't e- I don't even like the fact that my alarm clock persistently tells me what time it is. Like, speaks the words at me if I don't get up in time. And oh. I find that as technology gone mad. Do you remember? Remember? I don't know if they still have them. I'm sure they do, but I don't wear a wristwatch. But when the wristwatches, the digital ones, would on the hour, every hour, would just do a little beep, beep, beep. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it trained me. It trained me, right? That like every hour, if I didn't hear that beep, beep, then something was missing. Now I haven't heard it in years now, so I've, I think I've been untrained of that. But I. I, I remember that fondly, having some sort of sway over my daily activities. You know, I forgot about that beep beep. Have you guys I ever? Know, dude. Have you guys ever had a clock that tells you that that got daylight savings wrong? I, I remember one like a, time. No, I I had an alarm clock that claimed to know exactly when daylight savings was happening, so it would just, you know, push it back for me. And one day I woke up. And the clock said it was 11, and then my computer clock said it was 10. And I didn't know what time it actually was, and I was, like, freaking <laughs> out. Like, how do I find out which is right and which is wrong? And, um, <laughs> and I mean, you know, obviously it only took me a couple minutes to just Google it. Like, what time is it? But it just made me realize that how without these machines telling me what time it is, like, I literally just don't even know. Like, I- I'm cut off from reality. I'm like, do I have a test in an hour or do I have a test right now and am I fucked? Uh, I just had I was lost all sense of orientation and it was it kind of fucked with me a little bit. Well, the problem is, is that we tend to think of technology. We use the word technology today to refer to information technology, computers and robots and cars. But what we don't often think of is that the bed that I'm sitting on right now is technology, right? The floor in my house, the wood floors, that's technology. The pencil, the pen that you use to write, that's technology. The bag that I carry my groceries in is technology, you know? And then we could take that to as simplistic uh, in human development or even let's go into the non-human animal when a gorilla uses a stick to measure the depth of the water before it crosses. That's 
a technology. So we need to really change how it is that we think about technology to really understand how it is that that we are embedded within these technological worlds. So that the, the world of Tetsuo the Iron Man, it is a it is a it is a dramatic enhancement of some sort of explicit fusion of humanity with metal but that really we're already kind of in that world like in my room right now I am surrounded simply by technology whether it's clothes or the chair or my desk or my wardrobe or the wires or the computer or the microphone or whatever it is it depends on the complexity that we're uh, that will determine what type of technology but nevertheless we're all kind of already these fucking we're Tetsuo Ironman you know no, I, I, the freaking uh, uh, Alexas and stuff blows my mind, like how quickly people have, have adapted to that. Like I'm around people where like literally they are having conversations with their Alexas all day, <laughs> you know, telling them to turn on the music, telling them to do whatever, you know, check, uh, adding stuff to grocery lists and stuff. That always blows my mind. And then I know somebody whose name is Alexa and it just fucks the whole day up. <laughs> You're just like, God, the fucking Alexa is constantly talking to you, and I don't know who to talk to. It sucks for her. I but feel uh, like that's anyway. more an L.A. thing, though, man. Like, Andy, what's, what's, what's it like in Glasgow? Are people walking no, around? Dude, my, all my family in Memphis does, does the same thing. Everyone in Tennessee dude, they're, uh, they're giving those away. They're, what are they, like $30? Like, anyone yeah. can have an, an Alexa. They are notoriously bad <laughs> at picking up Scottish accents. Um, most, most things, most things are. They're just like, no, no, that, I dude, don't know what dude, that is. Have you seen that commercial with the elevator where they're? It's oh like no, that this... was a yeah, that was from a Scottish uh, a Scottish sketch comedy show called Burniston. Um, the where they're trying to get to the eleventh floor and the elevator doesn't understand it. Yeah, so that's the thing. Is like, so what do you do when when technology like it doesn't work with us? Right, yeah, <laughs> like it's great, I, but I, is there some is there some sort of hegemony, like an American hegemony? Like if you have a if you have a California accent that's like a straight American accent, then they understand you. But if you have other types of English accents, they're like, what? Can you what? <laughs> yeah. All right, I had one more point to make about the form of this film. Uh, so the whole way that we understand that the metal fetishist wanted to be a better runner is entirely through montage, which is something that I really appreciate about this movie. So we see images of cutout runners juxtaposed with the metal in the fetishist's shack. So once again, if we're if I'm making the argument that the form of the film is drawing attention to the format or the technology, the essential building block of cinema is montage, juxtaposing two images together to create meaning. So uh, that's me, my most wankiest for this movie. Um Anyway, before we go into the mailbag, uh, Andy, I want to hear what are your thoughts about the general state of horror film today? What movies excite you? What movies depress you? <laughs> I don't actually think it's that bad. A lot of people are really down on it right now, but uh, I think there's some. Uh, I've seen some really good stuff lately. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have seen One Cut of the Dead, um, which is a, sticking with the kind of. Oh, I cannot wait. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's the, so the, good. The, the one shot um, zombie movie. Yeah, it's it's so good. It completely subverts what you think it's going to be, um, and it's just a, a lovely kind of surprising experience. Uh, so I would absolutely suggest that. I I just think horror's in a pretty good place right now. Um, there's a lot of good people getting involved, and a lot of interesting hands getting getting stuck in about things. Um, and uh, yeah, um, horror's one of these things. It's kind of cyclical, but. And amongst, and I will say, and I'll throw my hands up to this myself, um, there's a lot of shit out there, <laughs> but by the nature of the genre, there's always going to be, because 
horror is something you can turn out relatively cheaply and a lot of times that kind of comes with uh, its hits and its misses. And yeah, I mean, I, I watch everything, good or yeah. bad, uh, and kind of let my experience and uh, kind of inform my opinion um, rather than ever kind of... I never listen to any reviews anymore. I never really read reviews anymore. Are you seeing these films on like the the horror film circuit, or are there places where people can find good horror on like Netflix and shit like that, or in the there, theater? There are places you can find good horror on Netflix. It really takes a, a fair amount of digging because there is. I would I would say a lot of the streaming platforms uh, are weighted considerably in favor of stuff that's pretty bad. Um, but a lot of what I see is on the horror movie circuit because, or the horror movie festival circuit because I do spend a lot of time at festivals. Um, like week after next, Fright Fest has its big uh, Glasgow event as part of the Glasgow Film Festival, so I'll be at that next weekend. Um, and then they have their main event in April, uh, sorry, August, and then stuff in like the whole October for me is pretty much taken up every year. Um, but uh, yeah, um, a lot of the best stuff that you see there kind of disappears into obscurity around home kind of kind of home entertainment release um mm. so you really need to if you see something good you really need to be shouting it so that it stands out amongst the a lot of the dreck but i would say it's in a pretty good place i would say mainstream horror is probably in a better place than it's been for a little while with the exception of stuff like slender man which you don't really you don't really want or the bye bye man yeah. shit like that you can that can go bye bye um <laughs> it's just uh yeah i think it's in a decent place and there's a lot of good people um making a lot of good stuff and i think most people right now their hearts in the right place when they're when they're coming to do it i'm more excited about horror now than i ever have been yeah I, some of the as a movie i saw on netflix raw the belgian french uh kind of movie about a, a woman turning Rose into a cannibal while exploring her sexuality amazing it's one of the best so like one of the best horror yeah. films i've seen in, in years um, yeah I gems like that it. the babadook was so good i even like the purge films i like uh i like some of the saw films but in general i mean because i grew up in the 90s where the only horror films that you heard of were scream and i know what you l- did last summer which i have a soft spot for those as well but because horror movies are the only kind of thing that you can make cheaply and that can be profitable in a theatrical setting um there's a lot of them out and i think a lot of them are good so i'm excited for horror i uh uh andy i wanted to see if you had seen um two horror movies i saw recently uh velvet buzzsaw and lords of chaos right Um, okay yeah Yeah, uh velvet buzzsaw i thought was hilarious and i wasn't sure that it thought it should be like i wasn't sure that that was intentional yeah um yeah i kind of got that too lords of chaos i'm actually seeing uh, on thursday next week uh at glasgow uh, glasgow fright fest dude it's freaking awesome look i i i had to say uh, like yeah lord lords of chaos is fucking amazing everyone go see that when it comes out it's a death metal horror movie and then uh uh and then, yeah, I kind of had the same thoughts about Velvet Buzzsaw. I like was like, I, cool characters. Jake Gyllenhaal is hilarious in it. But, yeah, it, it was kind of like, what is this movie and who is this for? Yeah. Like, it, it had a very strange tone, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, Lords of Chaos, uh, probably my, one of my most uh, anticipated films of the year, uh, I think. 
Andy, have you ever heard of a festival called Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas? I have indeed. <laughs> We've had yeah. one of our films. One of our films played there. <laughs> no, it oh, did not. no way! Really? <laughs> no, it did not. Oh no, it did not. Austin oh, I thought it, just uh, Austin has just made up a lie on a live. Uh, oh, I thought it did. I thought it did. Uh, well, I thought there was a Fantastic Fest that one of our films there's, played. There's at. like My a. Bad. There's like a fantastical fest anyway. But anyway, Ryan and I used to go to Fantastic Fest all the time, and I saw some of the best horror films there. Like you said, movies that you see are amazing, and then unfortunately they kind of fizzle into obscurity. Yeah. But if you're ever in the States, I can't recommend that festival enough. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I know a lot of guys who, who have played there, and I know um, I kind of follow the, the lineup every single year because it is, uh, it's probably one of the top five genre festivals in the world. Yeah. All right, guys. That's for life, baby. For life. Hell yeah. (laughs) Uh, All right. We're going to go ahead and move into the mailbag. We're going to start off with our voicemails. If you want to send us a voicemail with thoughts, comments, jokes, insights, analyses, hit us up at 213-534-8807 or 21ElfGut or ElfHut07. All right. Let's go with this one. Hey, Wascar. This is Red Rax. I just wanted to – I know I'm a little late, but I have something to say about Con Air. Two years ago, I took a conflict resolution class where we watched the opening scene from the film. We learned that because Poe decided to fight back against the attacker and didn't decide to um, escape the situation, he was actually not acting in self-defense. And therefore, his imprisonment, his imprisonment was completely justified. I find this interesting because um, the movie sort of treats it like his imprisonment wasn't justified, that... Uh, he's just completely good. I just wanted to your thoughts on this. Thanks. All right. Thank you for that message. Huh. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember exactly what happens when instigates it. Is it that he could have just walked away, but then he they could've. just keep shit talking yeah. him, and so okay. Yeah, yeah they wait, come out to the car. Air, yeah, that's exactly what happens. He has the opportunity to to lay down and and not get involved in this, but he can't help himself yeah and i think that kind of speaks to the fact remember where because when he first meets monica potter after coming back she's like there's like some sort of hint that he used to be a certain way and that 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 man is dead or whatever and it clearly it's the man that has no self-control the man who needs to fight whatever and that's the man that he can't suppress when they come out to the car and he has an opportunity to go and she even says like let's just get in the car and go but he can't resist and he does engage I did wonder that when I was watching it, but nevertheless, the film, I think, still wants to make it seem like it, it was an act of self-defense because he didn't, like, chase after them or something. I don't and know. And d- despite that, those guys are just so hateable, and they're characterized as just the biggest slimeball douchebags, people who will walk right up to a uh, a colorated officer and, you know, talk shit to him to his face when he's on leave, you know. So I think we're all meant to believe that, oh, man, those fucking drunk pieces of shit deserved it whether or not that would hand hold up in a court of law not a lawyer so i'm not going to contest that <laughs> all right well let's... i mean like 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 if, if there was a video of that altercation and they played it and to a jury you know like wh- what do you think with that kind of proof like i i feel like you can't convict them and send them to jail for 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 them instigating that fight you know so i disagree with you caller well, the cynical thing is it just depends on when the video starts. If it starts during the fight, then he's fucked. If it starts before the fight, maybe he's got a better chance. No, I'm saying that they have they have all the context. They see the entire how it all went down. 
he would totally be exonerated. I don't know. Once again, I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, let's go into the mailbag. So we got another email about the Fire Festival. This is from People love the Fire Fest, man. Yeah, man. What's the next documentary we're going to do, by the way? Oh, man, Uh, Uh, there's one coming out about um, uh, that's supposed to be the next fire festival for the pharmaceutical industry. I think it's called, like, The Inventor, and it's about this woman who had, like, a a pharmaceutical Ponzi scheme, basically, like a a fake gene Uh, testing kit. Oh, what is this woman's name? Um, Jacob talks about this all the time. Raytheon, right? Yeah, uh, or um, it's this woman, she, like, scammed the biggest investors in the world, including... Uh, like Elon Musk and all these people. What is her name? Anyway, we'll definitely cover that one. And Jacob's going to be on that one because he talks about that all the time. Anyway, so this one is from Kevin. Uh, He said, wanted to say thanks for the episode on the Fire Festival. Uh, You covered a lot of subjects I've been hoping you'd take on for a long time. I wish you had an entire podcast talking about those issues regularly. I have a lot of follow-up questions that I'd love to hear your take on if you ever did more episodes on those themes. So this is actually a series of questions that Kevin puts forth. So I'm just going to go through all of them and then we're going to talk about it. Has the pursuit of meaning, fulfillment, and identity through social media in... Let me take it again. Has the pursuit of meaning, fulfillment, and identity through social media engagement reached a level comparable to what was promised by the church before the idea that God is dead? Do people seek the same thing through social media that were once sought through church in an era where the church provided all sense of meaning and purpose? Do social media norms define how to achieve fulfillment, similar to how the church defined how to get into heaven? Do the highly manufactured lifestyle of major social media figures represent a sort of afterlife that is promised to those who achieve that level of social media profitability? Are people who don't participate in social media beginning to be seen as heretical, similar to how many view atheists with suspicion? If materialism and other philosophical-slash-ideological systems to achieve fulfillment I think that's R, he put, uh, replace the void left by the church on the death of God is seeking meaning through social media and evolution of this. So what do you guys think? Is Twitter our new God? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wow. Uh, I hate Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. I hate it as well, sir. It's a nest of vipers, man. (laughs) Yeah, Twitter's a fucking cesspool. But uh, but I in terms of the I I think he's onto something in terms of the place that uh, uh, it holds in our lives. Like you know, b- b- back in the day, you you had a family because and and you needed food, and it was all more about survival. And then yeah, the uh, the church was you know your spiritual life. But then now life's about partying, basically. Like you don't need you don't need uh, uh, food. There's so scarcity is is not as big of a deal. And so there's just you have people who have all this free time to, you know, and so, yeah, their 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 social lives are their lives. The, the, you know, that's the most important thing to, uh, you know, young people. So I think he's on to something. But I, I don't think that people literally look at it as a God that created us. <laughs> well, know? if we just say, that, you know, some for that, some that people, precisely. Christ, yeah. Christ gives them a sense of self or a sense of that what they're doing in life is that they're on the good path and that they can feel comfortable in their life situation because they're living a Christian life. Or I don't, I don't mean to just specify Christianity. This could be Judaism, Islam, whatever. But I think that social media, possibly that's where at least people look to to get that validation that they're living an acceptable life or that they have an acceptable sense of identity or anything like that. I, I do think there's a parallel to be drawn there. 
Did you guys ever read yeah, or have you seen that. the TV series um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman? Yes, both. No. I read well, it when I was in middle school, and uh, it, I didn't think the series was out yet. It is? Uh, yeah, it's yeah, been the out. It's series like... is, the, the second series is actually about to start fairly soon. Uh, it's uh, an Amazon. Okay. Oh, it's okay, Amazon, right, Andy? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's an Amazon series. Um, I, I haven't watched the, the, the series, but I, I read the book. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating that he talks about that we can really kind of apply to this question is is precisely this, is that we have different types of gods. The gods from the past were the explicit gods, you know, the gods of Jesus, the god of uh, – I mean, Buddha wasn't a god, but in some forms, like in Pure Land Buddhism, he's turned into a god. But um, you, you have these, like, you know, Yahweh and things like that that are these explicit gods that are these transcendent beings that you worship. Whereas now it's like the emergence of technology, you know, the emergence of television as a new god. The credit card is the new god. And it's just basically where are your pieties directed? If you spend all day watching the Kardashians and then trying to emulate that, are you not kind of turning them into a type of god? So in the age of the death of god, the death of the explicit transcendent god, in what way are our pieties being directed rather than to the transcendent but to like more imminent or material sources that have replaced it because they're the things that, as you just said, Jared, provide satisfaction or they mitigate the uncertainty that faces us in a world that is uncertain. And that's what technology has become. That's what social media has become. It's become the thing that mitigates the risk in our lives that previously the place of religion or the place of the state or whatever, mythology or the, the community's uh, identity or whatever uh, stood in for. But now those things don't have as big of a hold in kind of the postmodern age with the skepticism towards meta narratives and skepticism towards the sufficiency of the self and sufficiency of reason and things like that. So we look elsewhere. And absolutely, I think that that's precisely the point. And there's some great literature out there in like the sociology of uh, economics or political economy and things like that to talk about this. There's a, uh, a guy named Martin Konings, who I actually work with here in Sydney, who's written about this, where that like that neoliberalism offers you the promise of satisfaction, the promise of the redemption, right? We could use that word, but without actually being able to fulfill on the promise because what you need to do is continually consume. So it's it's holding out the promise but not actually being able to deliver on that promise because there is no heaven. There is no final end. So those are things to think through in the age of the death of God, and I think that's a very those are very astute questions that the person asks. Austin, I have a question for you as a recovering or an ex-evangelical. I don't want to use the word recovering, but as an as <laughs> I'm an always ex- recovering. No, recovering yeah. is good. I'm, I'm still in the process of crisis. As an ex-evangelical slash ex-almost pastor or priest or whatever, do you ever think that, okay, so if if people are searching for meaning and they either find it in God, but if there is no, or if they choose not to find it in God, then they go elsewhere. Do any of the, the news of people looking elsewhere, whether it be social media or any of these other things, are you ever just like, oh, you know what, actually, no, let's just just go back to God. You know, that that, that that's better than these alternatives. Yeah, I talk about this a lot with a buddy of mine, Darius, uh, and who's going to be coming on Owls at Dawn in the in the coming weeks here because he is uh, he's much more inclined towards that idea of going back of of trying to mm-hmm. reclaim some sense of transcendence because he looks at the vacuousness of these let's say other gods you know these uh, these other things that stand in for God in the age of the death of God and he says but there's they're not offering anything they're just provided by the logic of the commodity or the logic of capital but there's no substance there there's no there there there's there's nothing meaty there's no value and and I mean that in the literal sense and uh, I think I've talked about this remember when someone asked about like you know hustle culture and their question was like but not all hustling is bad right and I said well what we need to think about is why are we hustling? And it's that question of why are we doing things that we don't often ask, whereas 
Transcendence was always about the why. It's why do you help your neighbor? Well, because your neighbor is made in the image of God. So there's like some fixed reason that's supposed to motivate your actions for helping your neighbor. So why do we vote this way? Or why do we provide food for these people? Or why do you go to war? And it's because we have a fixed foundation. But if that fixed foundation is gone, if there is no God, how do we ask these why questions? And that's something that's really difficult. And I don't think we need to go back. I don't think we need to go back. But we can learn from what what was beneficial about the the structuring systems of asking those whys and then having the fixed foundations, but we can but we can uh, sort of prevent falling into the kind of rigid systems of hierarchy and things like that that issued or that echoed kind of from that. And I think in an age of the death of God, where you can still kind of have both, it's very difficult, but we're not often um, we're not often thinking through those questions. And I think that would be the more kind of appropriate way to do it. I mean, that's just where my head is now. I don't know yeah. what that means. I sometimes but I think ebb and flow, is... but I tend to lean towards more your friend. I mean, we talk about this a lot with, yeah. you know, I, I think of I think of Weekend at Bernie's when I think of the death of God. If Bernie is dead, a.k.a. God is dead, we got to just pretend he's alive to keep the party going, man. Right. <laughs> right. Anyway. Uh, all right. This next one's from Steven. He said, just listen to your podcast about Roma, and I wanted to give my thoughts about the car. He says, it's similar to yours, Jared, in that it represents the marriage, but I think it's Sophia, the mother's opinion slash perception of the marriage. They try incredibly hard not to scrape the car at the beginning, like Sophia is trying really hard to keep the marriage together, maybe for the family. Then she accidentally scrapes it in traffic, and perhaps this represents her feeling guilt slash responsible for her, for her husband's infidelity, like she could have done more for her the sake of her marriage. When the car gets banged up in the garage, it's Sophia finally accepting that the marriage is over, and then when her new car comes, it represents her new life and future. What do you think? I think Stephen uh, put it well. He put yeah. it better than I put it, but that's kind of what I was going for. Yeah, that's what you were trying to say. Yeah, right, good Jared? email. Yeah, that's essentially what I was trying to communicate. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Here, here. Concur. Did you see? Uh, did you see Roma, Andy? I have. Yes. Yeah. What yeah. what did you think of it? I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah. I did hear one criticism recently about Roma though that I thought was interesting. It was that uh, that there wasn't enough of like development of character and then this person started kind of talking about Quaron's filmography, the English language films at least after Itu Mama Tambien and that that's been a current weakness in the films. And it's been making me think about it. For me, I don't mind it cuz I like conceptual and thematic films, but his concern was that Cleo wasn't like a developed enough character. And that there wasn't enough of a richness, and that the mom is really the one who has the most richness of a, of like character development, but that everyone else are kind of just like abstractions or stand-ins to serve this larger conceptual piece, and that some people felt it was a little cold or stale because of that. I call blasphemy. That movie is <laughs> perfect, and I, I got a I got a lot from her character. I feel like you, it's one of those very subdued performances that you know, like just I don't think you needed a lot more uh, to go deeper personally. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with Ryan. I mean, I I mean, I guess I don't know what character development means exactly. If it requires like an extra two five minute scenes where she talks about her favorite movies, I probably don't need that. Or whatever you know. Um, anyway, uh, this last one is from Pablo. He says this is also about Roma. He said one thing I wanted to comment about the movie Roma that I found strange you guys didn't mention is at the end of the movie when the father of the family has taken his stuff out of the house, we find that he took the bookshelves but left the books. What mm. kind of a person takes a bookshelf but leave the books? Yeah, I found that interesting. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I, I got it as just him being, you know, just kind of just a, 
characterization of how shallow he was. Yeah. Like, yep. He's just into the to the looks, the furniture of it, but like, all, oh, all the intellectual shit in the middle, I don't care, you know, because I'm just some uptight asshole. It's kind of how I took it. Yeah, it certainly colors him as being a tool. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I was thinking that kind of like superficial shallow and he he met a new he met a new woman already right like isn't that the idea is that he's moving in with his new his new bird yeah that mm-hmm. i think the kids actually see him running with this woman and then uh because the cleo oh, is right. there cleo's there and she's like was that dad and she's like no it wasn't or something like that it couldn't be he's in oh, panama right. or wherever he's supposed to be was yeah. that you was that you trying to relate to me there austin by using the word bud you know what? I think it must have been because you were on the podcast. Yeah, because I have I never used that word. It, I, somehow I was Mabel trying to Dunn. appeal to our. <laughs> I was trying to appeal to our Brit- our British audience. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to sign off. But before we do that, uh, where can we find you guys on the internet? And Andy, where can we find some of your work? So you go oh, first, sir. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Well, you can uh, if anybody wants to follow me on the as I said on the Nest of Vipers that is Twitter. Um, I'm there at Andy Makes Stuff. Um, there's a link on my Twitter profile to my Vimeo, which is chock-a-block with disgusting short body horror films. Uh, more stuff in the works. Uh, I've also got a podcast myself called Strong Language and Violent Scenes, which I do with my buddy Mitch. Uh, we do two episodes a week. We have guests coming on uh, from the world of horror, directors, actors. They choose a film and we talk about whether or not it's good or shite. And then, yeah, uh, yeah, you can get us there uh, on Facebook at Strong Language Violent Scenes. Same on Instagram and on Twitter at Strong Violent PC. Rock and roll. All right, and Ryan, what about you? Um, uh, I make a game show in my garage called Ryan's Game Show. You can, uh, I got a new episode coming out uh, in a couple weeks. And uh, Ryan Shorts also uh, you can check out. And I guess you can watch me on the Funhouse channel every once in a while, too. Going to be playing Grand Theft Auto next week, I think. Um, and, oh, yeah, I, I also I, I got a comment on the, the live stream I wanted to share that I thought was nice. A guy named Elias said, uh, referring to our pleasure or pain conversation, he wrote us a poem. And he said, pleasure or pain, in hentai, it's the same. <laughs> yeah, there we go, see, Jeff. See the scene where she fucks him with a, the... The kind of pussy pipe thing. Yeah, the big metallic snake thing. Thank you, Elias. I think you hit it, hit the nail Thank on the you, head Elias. there. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right, Austin. Uh, yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Instagram, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. Got a philosophy podcast, Owls at Dawn. Check us out. All right, guys. Rock and roll signing off. Until next week, see you guys later. Peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California! Game over!